minutes for rebuttal. Let's just make sure everybody gets settled because we had a lot of people moving around. All right. I think we're good to go. You may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, Jim Murray, on behalf of the appellant plaintiff below the Madeline Chocolate Company. The trial court's denial of Madeline's post-trial 50B motion is, of course, reviewed by this court to know. So this is the question. Did Great Northern carry this burden to introduce sufficient, legally cognizable, extrinsic evidence under New York law that clarified the ambiguity identified by the district court between the flight exclusion and the windstorm endorsement as it relates to storm surge wind-driven water loss? The answer is no. Great Northern called one witness at trial who had any personal involvement whatsoever with the sale of this policy. Corporate designee on this issue. And I cross-examined him. And he readily admitted there were no negotiations or any other communications whatsoever. Well, I guess I think my more fundamental question is whether the seaboard standard that would apply at summary judgment does apply at trial or whether you just default back to what the judge instructed the jury on, which was just the standard preponderance instruction for a jury. And it's, I mean, we had a case, it was not an opinion, it was a summary order that acknowledged it's not really clear under New York law which it is for a trial, whether the seaboard only applies pre-trial or whether it applies post-trial. And so I guess I'm trying to make sure I'm not missing something. Well, so, Your Honor, I think the question here is the most important part. There are two, we are asking for a new trial in the alternative, but that's a small part of our request. This case should be reversed de novo. And in your summary order, the summary order in 2018, the court made clear that the interpretation of the agreement was a matter of law. And it toyed, Your Honor's toyed with, that's not the right phrase, but Your Honor's discussed the possibility that that should be interpreted before this court in 2018, that ambiguity. And the court found that that windstorm endorsement is applied to the entire policy. So can you explain to me, like, what you think this court's holding in our first Madeline decision? And obviously somebody on that panel was here. But what do you think is the law of the case that we have to apply? I think the law of the case, most importantly, is that the windstorm endorsement and the windstorm definition in that endorsement, this court held as a matter of law, applies to the entire policy, not just to the endorsement. And this court held that as a matter of law. It also held that the windstorm event, Sandy, was caused by storm surge. It's not superflex Sandy. It was superstorm or hurricane Sandy. And the court held that that was caused by water being pushed into the factory, which it was, by wind. So those two, and here's what happened, is Your Honor suggested, should we find an ambiguity right now, as a matter of law, back in July of 18? And if you'll recall, the baseball analogy tie goes to the runner in the shoes. And Your Honor took a second look at it and said, let's have a replay. And in carefulness, sent it to the district court. And he instructed Judge Geary to do the following steps. Look at this policy. And you determine whether there is a windstorm. You determine whether there's an ambiguity created by the windstorm endorsement's definition. These are the flood exclusions. Those are your, that's this court's words, these are the. And you instructed the court 
that he that he needed to uh, analyze that issue. Judge Deary did that right. At J at, at, uh, at uh, in his at, uh, appendix 97 113, his 17-page opinion that he analyzed those provisions and did what you told me. And then he decided to cross summary judgment. And this in and of itself is not incorrect, that he was going to send this to the jury because he thought there was sufficient evidence to go to the jury. Under New York law, extrinsic evidence, if it's properly cognizable, could clarify that ambiguity. Now, in retrospect, on that summary judgment ruling, all he held up was the same things that he held up in our post-trial denial of, of, of our motion. That is the 2001 cancellation of the flood policy that didn't have the windstorm endorsement, didn't have the anti-concurrent causation clause that competes with the standard form part of the policy. And then he holds up the, uh, the, uh, the fact that uh, in 2000 and, uh, sorry, 2011, Madeline's broker answered a request for a certificate of insurance on flood insurance, and he, and he answered with the theme policy. Three million dollars from the from the uh, national flood insurance program. That's a totally different animal. Didn't have a windstorm endorsement. Totally ignored the issue that this court sent back to it. So, but I mean, I think there. I think we're we're kind of completing two different issues, and I want to make sure I'm thinking about them. There's obviously the motion for judgment, and then there's a motion for new trial. Um, why wasn't the information that you gave, you know, so? The, they weren't risk of. Uh, they did not think they were at risk of flooding. The fact that they only said that they had three million. The fact that they uh, produced a report that documented windstorm floods as different categories. The internal emails showing the pivoting. Why is that not enough to defeat the at least the judgment as a matter of law? Because it doesn't go at all, Your Honor, to the ambiguity that's been identified by this court. Well, right, but the ambiguity, I think, speaks more pointed. Or tell me why I'm wrong. Why am I wrong that the ambiguity speaks more pointedly to the denial of the motion for a new trial because of the case of uh, violation of the, the law of the case doctrine? Well, it speaks more pointedly, Your Honor, to the 50 motion as a matter of law because this court identified and then Judge Deary identified the ambiguity. And the only way, under any other, most states' law, that ambiguity would have been the end of the game. And it would have been considered under New York law, extrinsic evidence, if it's proper, can clarify that ambiguity. To be proper, it has to be contemporaneous at the time of contract and go to the issue that's identified as ambiguous. And that is the conflict between those two provisions. The anti-concurrent causation of the windstorm system doesn't matter if there's a flood. If that, was, if that water got there by the wind slamming into the factory, then it is covered. And that is the ambiguity that needs to be clarified. So for Judge Geary to point to a policy that was a flood policy, he chose a flood policy for 10 years earlier and didn't have the windstorm endorsement. Or the FEMA policy, totally different now, didn't have the windstorm endorsement. It did not have the characteristics that this court sent back to Judge Geary, and Judge Geary properly identified as an ambiguity. So there is no extrinsic evidence properly cognizable under New York law, Your Honor. When that, when that underwriter got... But, but I don't, why did this go to the trial then? I mean, then you should have won on summary judgment, Absolutely right? Absolutely should have. And, and, okay. And we could have, we should but, have. but what's puzzled me is that so it goes to trial uh, and the judge gives a jury instruction that's completely different from what you're arguing now and you didn't object. Uh, that goes to the new trial. 
honest. First of all, the first half of that is that the judge said to me, um, when I objected that, that the, the uh, Great Northern was arguing that the Winstrom definition does not apply to the policy in front of the jury, sidebar, your honor, Second Circuit, and he said to me, you expect me to follow a Second Circuit summary order. First time in my life I've been speaking. Yes, I expected him to do that. Your Honor, and then once... Well, the summary order being the one in this case, you mean? Absolutely. Or you're not referring to Caitlin or Catlin? No, but no. the summary order being Judge Toronto's and, 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 and Jackson Park and Judge Montemoto's in the designation. That was clear. And that is the reason, Your Honor, we went back down to try this case because of the summary order. All right, but but if you were being consistent, you would have... I, 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 would have insisted that the jury be instructed on the same thing that you're saying is the standard the district court should have been applying on summary judgment, right? Well, we didn't insist that, but we filed something. Out of terror, we filed motions in limine against the trial. There's a sneaking suspicion that the insurance company might argue that, that, that this was not law of the case. We had a motion in limine. Don't let them argue against law of the case and make sure it's only extrinsic evidence properly admitted. Those were... Deferred and then during trial consistently denied to where the court got loudly irritated with me for raising this question that I don't understand how this evidence is going in when I've got a second circuit order said that we didn't go back to trial and try the ambiguity that I identified. For the courts allowed... Well, I mean, I think, I think the, the judge would say it was because they had a jury instruction on it. Jury instruction, Your Honor, doesn't go... Let's assume the jury instruction was proper and cured that issue. It does not cure the JMOL issue that there was zero extrinsic evidence. All the stuff that Great Northern put in, in violation legally of this court's order, still doesn't go to the directors of the order that there was an ambiguity that should be resolved. There's no email that says, hey, hey, Madeline, I've got this windstorm endorsement, but it really doesn't trump the floods. So if you're thinking that, don't buy the policy. Of course there wasn't that evidence. The contract of adhesion is standard form language. If I could just say what this underwriter said, he admitted no negotiation, nothing with respect to the windstorm endorsement, the flood exclusion. There was no contemporaneous evidence at the time of contracting that would clarify the ambiguity that this court told Judge Jerry to go back and look at. And Judge Jerry quite properly said, you know, you're right. There is an ambiguity in this. And I can turn a combination clause in the windstorm endorsement and as it relates to the flood exclusion. And that is uncontested, Your Honor. That's why we spent significant time outlining that there's no cognizable evidence. It's nine years later. I do believe that in 2018, Your Honor, you could have ruled as a matter of law the ambiguity was to be construed in your favor, in our favor. Carefully sent back to Judge Jerry. Not one piece of evidence. And Judge Sullivan, you're quite right. Those cross-summary judgment motions in 
refer to the jury's unanimous acquitment of Lincoln Sussman based on extensive evidence. The parties never intended losses from moon-driven flood or storm surge. Okay, so can you tell me, though, I'll start with the same question I posed to your counsel. What do you think this court's holding in our first Madelon decision was? How did the panel decide in that case? I think we just read it for what it says, which is the error that the district court had made in the prior decision was relying on the Katrina cases that had a different language with respect to the windstorm that the court said. Those cases are distinguishable for that reason, so we shouldn't rely on them. And so we remand for you to decide, and it's very explicit. We won't get into it. I have my mind about what the court said. For you to decide whether there is an ambiguity when you, as Mr. Murray was saying, apply the windstorm, when you recognize that the windstorm definition, quote, applies to the whole policy. Take that, don't pay attention to the Katrina cases, and then decide whether there's an ambiguity. This court didn't say there was an ambiguity. You have to decide that, or an inconsistency, and then proceed from there. And that's exactly what the court did. It's not even at all inconsistent with what the court did, nor is there anything inconsistent, nor is there any reason this court could not, in a de novo review, read the policy and decide, as we have always submitted, that it is unambiguous, and that it unambiguously, as it says, the parties do, excludes losses, coverage for losses, from flood, whether driven by wind or not. The definition in the windstorm deductible, what it's called, the windstorm deductible, it's... So you don't think that the... So your position is that the first Madeline did not preclude your reading, the position that you're taking now. As I... I'm just literally reading the decision. It's like you have to decide that, because... You, the judge, the district court. Who's the you? The judge has to go back and reconsider your analysis of the policy, eliminating the Katrina cases, effectively, and recognizing that I... And we have always conceded. But didn't they also say that it makes it very difficult to read a policy in a way that avoids a conflict between the windstorm endorsement and the flood exclusion? So the question was, the judge has to figure that out, and there's no difficulty at all, as you've always said. Just reading the policy makes absolute perfect sense, because... Right, but so you're saying you should have won on summary judgment. Okay. That's always been our submission. I don't need to, you know, spend a lot of time on that. Okay, but the standard would have been then the seaboard standard, right? That there's no other reasonable interpretation. To get to ambiguity, it's true. There has to... If the policy is ambiguous, that there are two reasonable interpretations, which puts the burden on the insurer to exclude the interpretation proposed by the insurer as reasonable, and we have done that. It is not a reasonable interpretation, because, among other things, it creates just an irreconcilable inconsistency between the flood exclusion and the windstorm endorsement. And as we know, the first duty of a court reading the policy as a whole is to try to reconcile. So I guess I'm trying to figure out when does a case like this ever go to trial? Because it seems to me what you're saying is you win because there's no other reasonable interpretation of this policy. And Mr. Murray is saying he wins because to the extent that there is another reasonable interpretation, he automatically wins. And the judge, by deciding it's going to a trial, for a jury to decide, that must mean there are multiple reasonable interpretations. So for a judge to decide that correctly, that's a de novo question of law for the court, whether there's ambiguity, whether there are multiple interpretations. So that's in every case where there's multiple interpretations, 
if there's disputed extrinsic evidence, it goes to the jury. Our principal submission, but not our only submission, our principal submission is that you don't even get to that because there's no ambiguity. Their interpretation is not a reasonable one for the reasons I've explained. Even when you apply the definition, quote, to the whole policy, what the definition says is windstorm means the following things. It's not used elsewhere in the policy. It's not used in the coverage provision for all that it's worth to include the anti-concurrent causation clause and all of that. It only applies where the word appears, right? And it appears. No, I get that. And this might have been a very effective argument to make to Judge Deary, but it seems to me that he didn't agree with you, right? No, it's not. We made the argument to him that he should have convinced him that he didn't. And so it's the first argument that as a matter of law, this court can say as a matter of law, the policy is only susceptible to one reasonable interpretation. But moving beyond that, because Judge Deary did disagree with us, although he came very close to agreeing. Remember, he did the exercise of inserting the word windstorm into cover peril wherever it appeared. And then he tried to read the policy as if, rather than cover peril, it said windstorm. And he was so close to agreeing with us because when you do it that way, what he said. But doesn't that create, doesn't that prove the ambiguity? Like if, like at the very least you can, well, I'm not sure that you conceded in what you said earlier. At the very least, didn't the Madeline decision suggest that the windstorm endorsement added a clause to the definition of cover peril for the entire policy? At the very least, would you agree that that's what Madeline did? No, not quite. It said it applies to the whole policy. The definition applies to the whole policy, which is true. But what the definition says is this is the definition of the word windstorm. So you just apply that definition wherever the word is. Okay, if we disagree with you that that's what Madeline, no, but I'm saying, so this is important. If we disagree with you that that is not what Madeline held, and instead Madeline held that the windstorm endorsement adds an ACC clause to the definition of a cover peril for the entire policy, and I'm quoting from it, doesn't the exercise of him trying to put windstorm in and it not working suggest an ambiguity? I don't disagree with that. I don't think that's the right, that you are, even under this court's prior opinion, when you add to the whole policy, that doesn't mean you read the word windstorm into cover peril. It just means you apply the definition whenever you see the word windstorm. That's always been our fundamental disagreement. But I don't want to get wrapped around the axle on that because I agree with you that the judge rejected our argument, said it's ambiguous, and then did what the courts are supposed to do. When you find an ambiguity, whether you're right or not, if you find an ambiguity, you then determine whether or not there's sufficient extrinsic evidence disputed to go to trial. But what's the inquiry at trial then? Does it just revert to then what was the intent of the parties, or is it the same inquiry that it was at summary judgment as to whether or not this agreement is susceptible to no other reasonable interpretation, which would be a higher standard? So I don't think it's the latter, and I don't think there's cases that say that in the context of reviewing a trial verdict. I think the Catlin case got it right. Well, the Catlin case basically said we don't know, right? Well, but it analyzed it and said as long as the jury is asked to decide what the intent was, and if the insurer doesn't, the burden's on the insurer, right? So if the insurer doesn't prove that their view was the one endorsed by the parties, then they lose. If the evidence is still equivocal, the insurer loses, right? So the insurer wins by establishing that the intent of the parties was to do one view or to adopt the other. No, I have to say it's just been puzzling to me that the New York law is not crystal clear on this, but at least Catlin 
suggested that New York Clear is quite confusing on this. And so should we be referring this, certifying this to the New York State Court of Appeals and ask them to clarify? I don't think you need to. Let me make two points. Yeah, tell me why not. So the two points are, one, I think the Seymour standard you're referring to in terms of the heavy burden is about the initial inquiry of excluding the possibility of another reasonable interpretation. I don't think you could ask a jury to say, which is the reasonable interpretation. That's a question of law for the court. Juries resolve extrinsic evidence about intent. So it's just sort of an awkward question to ask jurors. You know, you've excluded the possibility that this interpretation is reasonable. So I don't think that was met. And they rely mainly on the Cavalier case. And I think that case, it cites the York case, if you look at that. When Cavalier says the burden is on the insurer to, you know, to establish that it's an only reasonable interpretation, I think it's referring back to that initial stage of establishing whether or not there's an ambiguity. It's not talking about the burden at trial because York is explicit about that. It cites York. When you look at York, you'll see that that's not talking about the trial burden at all. I don't think the reason I just said that it makes much sense. I would like to get into the actual trial evidence because counsel keeps saying there was no extrinsic evidence. It's just nothing more, nothing could be further from the truth. There was a lot of extrinsic evidence, and critically, it was completely one-sided. All of the evidence in this case, there's no evidence, zero evidence from Madeline that they ever intended for the windstorm endorsement that was added in 2006 to create this coverage that they had consciously foregone six years, five years earlier. They didn't bring anybody to testify to that. What's on the other side? Judge Perez went through several of the categories. There's even more, but just to restate them, it's the fact that Madeline canceled its $2.5 million in flood coverage in 2001 because it thought the flood coverage was too expensive and they didn't need it. And so the idea that they self-selectio sort of like actually adopted it five years later without any evidence of anybody thinking about it or talking about it. So if I think that, if I just can cut in here, sorry. If we're of the view, if the court believes that all of the evidence from, about your client's internal actors was improper, why did the jury instruction handle that appropriately? So two points on that. First, SR International says that's how you're supposed to handle that evidence. That's what you do. You give a limited instruction so the jury knows how to use that evidence and how, most importantly, how not to use it. In rejecting the instruction, the instruction here said you cannot consider that evidence, the uncommunicated evidence of intent or interpretation of the policy. All of that evidence came in for other purposes, and it's not impermissible for SR International to use it. Let me talk about what those other purposes were. First of all, Mr. Smith, that evidence, his entire testimony, when you look at it, and I urge you to read this testimony, he's not talking about uncommunicated intent like a secret meeting in a hallway or a memo that wasn't circulated. He's just describing Chubb's position when the claim was made, what physically happened, why it is that Chubb paid $4 million in windstorm coverage and didn't pay the flood coverage. He's just explaining the difference. He's explaining the position. It's not uncommunicated intent. It's just the party's position that the jury is being asked to resolve, and so he's explaining what it was. So that's a good example of it's not actually the kind of uncommunicated intent that anybody should be concerned about. The through line of your cases, Your Honor, I think you'll see is that uncommunicated intent alone can't create an ambiguity. There's lots of other evidence here that 
enabled the jury to quite easily reach the determination that the parties intended or, uh, uh, or did not intend for the policy to cover this company's kind of losses. Mr. Rosen was their witness, right? The Trump employee, they called him. On their direct of Mr. Rosen, they asked him about an internal windstorm strategy document. That was their decision on direct. We, of course, were entitled to put that into context and explain what the windstorm strategy was. Um, they probed Mr. Rosen why it is we didn't use the ISO forms, which have the word storm surge. Storm, storm surge. We're, of course, entitled to explain what the difference between the ISO form is once they put it in tissue and to say that wind-driven, whether wind-driven by wind or not, is the same thing as storm surge. We're entitled to explain, as I said earlier, why it is that we would pay $4 million for a certain kind of damage, wind damage, and not cover wind-driven flood damage. And then there's the Scott Wright letter from 2014, where it's an exhibit the jury's going to have where he says, we negotiated, we negotiated for the windstorm windstorm, uh, endorsement, and we paid additional premium. That's what he says. We're entitled to put that in context and explain that that never happened, that there was no negotiations over that, to explain why the windstorm deductible was added. Um, And all of that's absolutely permissible under SR International with the limiting instruction which the court gave. And on the basis of that, there's no reason to think that the consideration of all of this evidence, this extrinsic evidence, um, was in any way problematic, certainly as a matter of law. It was absolutely more, much more than sufficient to justify the determination the jury made that the parties did not intend for this policy to cover these losses. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Hacker. We'll now hear from Mr. Murray for uh, three minutes of rebuttal. Yes, sir, international is irrelevant, Your Honor. It still has to be tied to something in the case that's appropriate. So in SR International, you'll recall that situation where the policy was bound with one of the policy terms. Twin towers, either 350 billion or 750 billion, depending on the definition of occurrence. Of course, in that context, parties were allowed to talk about their negotiations, quotes, and what they have done historically. Nothing to do with this case where there is no ongoing negotiations. I did well, I did get cross-examined Mr. Rosen, and I was direct, but I cross-examined him. And he admitted that there were no discussions with respect to the windstorm endorsements, juxtaposition to the flood exclusion. And this is where I want to slow down. I want to slow down. Because it's, it's, it's seven years later that this court's opinion at, at Joint Exhibit A93, page 2, and there was a long discussion, there was briefing, I listened to the argument with my colleague Ed Joyce from Jones Day that did it, but I listened carefully, and the court held the policy main form did not expressly define windstorm. Instead, the policy contains an endorsement which defines the term windstorm for the entire policy. These three witnesses got up on the stand and, and said uh, to the jury, windstorm definition, that doesn't apply to the entire policy, no way, that's not how we do it. No ambiguity. You know why? Because you take the four corners of the flood exclusion, which we've never said the four corners aren't ambiguous, but you don't look at it vis-a-vis anything. You just look at the four corners, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm objecting time and time again, Your Honor. How are they even saying this? No, Your Honor, that does the jury instruction. Again, our first argument. I want the case. Right. I mean, I, like, I think I get it. You're saying the jury instructions may have uh, addressed the uncommunicated uh, expert evidence, but they did not address this particular issue about whether or not it went to the entire well, policy. Well, certainly it did not. We didn't address the other either, Your Honor. 
That instruction says that Madeline, that their intent, they know these sins not necessarily not ascribed to Madeline. It doesn't say you can't consider it, which you should have. But here's the other thing. During, after two days of testimony by Great Northern saying the jury, it's like the policy, not applying, it's not ambiguous. Two days. How could a jury be blamed for making this finding with that single instruction? It would be impossible over my objections to hear that to not think there was some relevance to it. But again, I don't want, I'm not taking the trial over, not putting one, but I think it should be decided as a matter of law. Now, we have no burden. We have no burden. And Judge Sullivan, if I could, the issue, if I could say it again, the only issue for trial on that cross-summary judgment motion, denied cross-summary judgment on the basis that he was going to let it go to trial to see if there was any legally cognizable extrinsic evidence that clarified the ambiguity. What does that mean? You're going to have a trial to see if there's any evidence? Well, that's... A jury's there, and they were going to ask in a verdict form to say, let us know if you see any evidence here. So what was the jury's verdict supposed to decide? Does the evidence that's submitted in this case clarify the ambiguity that I'm instructing you exists? We did object. They didn't instruct the jury that there was an ambiguity. So that would have been the verdict form would have said, did the evidence... Say that again. I want to make sure I understand it. The verdict form would say, did Great Northern carry this burden to prove the flood exclusion applied given the ambiguity in this policy between the windstorm endorsement and the flood exclusion and their anti-concurrent causation competing forms? If the evidence clarified that, Your Honor, here would be the evidence. Again, Great Northern saying, hey, Madeline, use the windstorm endorsement. Go buy this policy if you think that's going to cover what? A hurricane. Because we really need a problem. Nothing like that exists in this record. It is all, at most, it is speculative. We have no burden whatsoever. But the one thing we did do, he's quite right, at Joint Exhibit 2814, showed that the water exclusion, the ISO water exclusion, could have been used. And that's the exclusion, Your Honor, that kills this whole case for us. It said, hey, by the way, storm surge is included in our flood exclusion. That, in and of itself, was evidence that the industry knew that if they wanted to flood this gap that they created by a contract of adhesion, they could have used ISO form, identified it in Record 2814, and said, storm surge, you still don't have it. So, at the end of the day, Your Honor, this court, now as it could have done in 2018, but it's now 2023, reviews the noble. Judge Geary properly found, in a carefully paid 17-page opinion, there was an ambiguity. Nothing clarified that ambiguity. And the court should now grant and direct judgment in favor of Madeline on the issue of liability and send the trial back on damages. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Murray. And Mr. Hacker, we'll reserve decision.